0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verses 7 through 13. On May 3, 2011, the body of Osama bin Laden was laden with 300 pounds of chains and dumped into the Indian Ocean. Approximately one month prior, a team of highly trained combat veterans were assembled to carry out a mission. And the mission was the kill or capture of Osama bin Laden. Intelligence had revealed, within a reasonable amount of certainty, that Osama bin Laden had been in a compound in Pakistan. And the mission to kill or capture the world's most wanted man was not an easy one. It would require language skills, arms and munition training, elite tactical warfare training, high levels of technology and technological support, air transport, perfect secrecy perfect communication and even with all these things perfectly in place things could still go wrong because you can't account for what you don't know you can imagine the sort of planning and preparation that goes into a mission like this the success of the mission would depend on how well this team understood the nature of the mission and the plan to carry out the mission how disastrous would it have been for seal team six to plan for the mission of taking down Osama bin Laden with a wrong set of instructions, or perhaps with a wrong understanding of the mission, carrying out the mission on an incorrect target. For SEAL Team 6, it didn't merely matter that they were called to carry out a mission. They had to understand the nature of the mission and how to do it. To go about the right mission in the wrong way equals failure. And to go about the wrong mission in the right way also obviously equals failure. Now, sometimes when we have poor planning and poor communication and misunderstanding, success can still be had. But it's so rare that it proves the point. It's the exception that proves the rule. In the next text, or in, excuse me, in the text that God has for us today, we see that Jesus has a mission for his disciples. In the nature of that mission and how to accomplish it. It would have been readily understood by the disciples as they heard Jesus talk. But this mission has been less understood by Christians with each passing generation. Today's verses have been misunderstood and misapplied by many well-meaning Christians and some not so well-meaning Christians. At our worst, we can read this text and walk away wrongly understanding the mission of the church today and how it ought to be carried out. So join me in reading Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Give us a right understanding of your word, so that we might have a right understanding of your mission, and that we might carry it out to the glory of your name. Amen. I know of an organization that uses a method for missions that sees these verses that we've just read as the blueprint for how we're supposed to carry out the Great Commission, That is, they understand these verses to be the command for how the church ought to carry out the mission. And if not the command, they certainly think it's probably the best way to go about carrying out the mission in the church. And this organization is full of Christians who love the Lord, who have a desire to see the gospel go out into the world, who have a desire to see unrepentant sinners come to know Jesus Christ. And for all of that, I am thankful. But I do think that they're wrong and seeing these verses as a template for how missions ought to be carried out in the life of the church, I think they lack a good biblical theology to help them understand how to read their Bibles well. But I don't say any of that in scorn. I don't say it with a haughty eye or a mocking voice. I say it as someone who is entirely sympathetic for how easy it is to misinterpret Scripture, to misunderstand what we read, I say it as someone who's been guilty of confusing categories and misinterpreting Scripture myself many times over and as someone who may very well do the same in the future. I guess I'll know for sure when I get to heaven. If you're being honest, you can just as easily admit the same. How easy it is for us to read the Scriptures and to misinterpret them. How easy it would be, in fact, to even read these verses without someone helping you make sense of them or without having studied them or without... Really studying it in the spirit rather than in your own flesh, how easy it would be to misunderstand and misapply these verses. So, with that in mind, I'd like to give you six wrong ways to read Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Six wrong ways to read this text today. And then I want to give you six correctives or six right ways to help you understand it. The first wrong way to read this text is to read it as a list of things that missionaries can or cannot take with them on their mission. In verses 8 and 9, we read of Jesus commanding the disciples to take no bread, to take no bag, to take no tunic, to take no extra money. And then he positively tells them to take sandals and a staff. So it would be so easy of us To say, ah, this is what Jesus wants us to take with us or not take with us if we ever go out on a mission. At this point, I could go on a long spiel about biblical theology, but I'm going to save that for later, so tune in. Stay awake. For now, I simply want to note that later in Jesus' ministry, as he sends the disciples out for a second time, he gives the exact opposite set of orders. In Luke 22, verses 35 through 36, we read, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, he said to them. Excuse me, they said nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus himself says, the first time I sent you out with one particular set of instructions on what to take with you and not take with you, and now I'm sending you out again with a completely different set of instructions. But the question remains, why two different sets of instructions? He's sending them out to carry out the same mission, the preaching of the gospel. Why send you out with one set of instructions the first time, but then a completely contradictory set of instructions the second time? Well, Jesus doesn't say specifically, but I think we can kind of figure it out if we just read the Luke text carefully. You see, in the Luke text, Jesus asks right before he sends them out, did you lack anything the first time I sent you out? To which they replied, no. I think that Jesus sent his disciples out on their first journey with very little provisions in order to teach them a lesson about dependence, in order to teach them about what it looks like to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your sustenance. If they were to go out with an elaborate system of support, perhaps they would have much less opportunity for faith. When I look at these two examples, I can think of my own life. When Amber and I bought a plane ticket with our baby patients to go down to be missionaries in the jungles of Peru, we had zero cents in raised support. We did not raise one dime of support. Instead, we went out trusting Hoping, depending on the Lord Jesus Christ for our sustenance. Now I serve as the pastor of this local church, and I do the exact opposite of that. I think the Bible commands that the members of this church give to support the work of the ministry, which includes a pastor. I operated one way in one season of my life. Now I'm operating another way in another season of my life. And I really do believe that the Lord sent us down the way that He sent us down the first time in order to teach us to really trust in Him and to not trust in things and money. And I saw missionaries do it all the time. I saw them anytime they ran into a roadblock, they would just throw money at it and it would disappear. Well, we had no money. And we couldn't make roadblocks disappear. And if the Lord didn't do something, something wouldn't be done. And there's a sanctifying aspect of these kinds of experiences. Now the disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time. They've seen Him work mighty wonders and miracles. They know that they have every good reason to trust in Him. Now it's as, it's as if for this first mission, Jesus throws the little baby birds out of the nest knowing that they're going to learn to fly before they hit the ground. When you see Jesus' desire to teach dependence, here, I wonder if you recognize him doing the same thing in your life. Do you see him calling you to do things in such a way that require a deep-seated dependence on him and him alone? Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be broken off, but you just can't bring yourself to do it. You don't trust that God's going to provide you a spouse, so you think if I let this one go, there'll never be another one. Maybe you're afraid to make a certain decision because of the financial implications. Maybe you're failing to trust that Jesus will be your provider. I don't know what the Lord's calling you to do, but I do know the way that the Lord calls His children to be trained up is often to put them in positions where they have no one and nothing to trust in other than Him. And I know that we prosper when he puts us in positions like that. You see, the wrong way to read this text is to say, here's what I can or cannot take with me on my missions trip. The right way to read this text is to say that at a particular point in time, for a very particular reason, Jesus was calling his disciples to exercise a deep faith in him as provider. And then to recognize that Jesus is still doing that today in our lives. As one commentator says, true service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus tells us to go despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions and uncertainties. The Lord calls Abraham... Says you will be mine, and he doesn't really tell them much more than that. The, Jesus calls disciples as they're fishing. He tells them they're going to be fishers of men, but he doesn't tell them much more than that. But what about, what about my, what about my job? What about my wife? What about my my provision? What about, I know, I know. There's a thousand reasons we can say, but yet, yeah, but, but. What about this? What about that? But what about Christ? What about the way that He's shown Himself faithful a million times over in your life? If He's calling you to do a hard thing in a hard way for the glory of His name and for the good of your soul, stop saying, what about this and what about that? And start saying, yes, Christ, yes, I trust you. I know you've been good to me before. You're going to be good to me in the future. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to depend on you. Even if it all doesn't make sense. Even if I don't know where my next dollar is going to come from. Even if I don't know where my next job is going to come from. Is your job requiring you to work on Sunday and not be gathered with God's people? Find a different job. But what about about Christ? Jobs come and go. But what we do here on a Sunday morning matters eternally. Trust Him. Hasn't he proven himself faithful? My prayer is that this church would not be a church that says, yeah, but, or what about this and what about that. I pray that we would be a people that would just say like Isaiah, here I am, Lord. Send me. Even when, especially when, we don't know how he's going to do it. The second incorrect way to read the text today, is to see Christ sending out the disciples in pairs of two as simply a wise decision in the same vein of two heads are better than one. Why did Jesus send the disciples out two by two? In verse 7 we read, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Now, it's true, there are a great many practical benefits of sending people out two by two, right? Two people provide accountability. With two people, if one person falls ill, the other person can care for them. One person may be gifted in one area, and another person may be gifted in another area, and they complement each other. That's the way it works with us as elders. I'm very, very strong in some areas and incredibly weak in other other areas. And I expect my brothers-in-arms to kind of fill the gap for me in that. And they do very well. And all of this is wise and good. There's wisdom in this two-by-two, but you should know that there's more than wisdom. Thinking about that two-by-two stuff practically, it makes me think about my time in the Army. I remember when we had battle buddies in training. And anytime you went somewhere, your battle buddy had to be right next to you. He was there to help provide you with accountability. He was there to make sure you were in the right place at the right time in the right uniform, and for me, sometimes, even carrying my weapon. But I think there's more to Jesus' instructions here of sending people out two by two than a mere sort of sanctified battle buddy system. You see, the disciples were being sent out to do something. They were being sent out to preach the Gospel. Jesus is sending His representatives out to the world to tell them the truth about their need for a Savior, their need to repent, their need to trust in Him. He's sending them out to usher in the coming of the Kingdom of God. And to reject that message is to reject Christ Himself. And that would require a verdict of judgment. In verse 11, we read of Jesus telling the disciples what to do in response to such, such objection. Let's read it together in verse 11. And, if, in any place, and if, it, if any place will not receive you, and if they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Wiping the dust off of your feet towards someone was essentially to call them a Gentile. So as Jesus is sending out his disciples in pairs of two to all these Jewish villages to proclaim the gospel of God and to call them to repentance and faith. He's also telling them, if they don't listen to you, I expect you to render a spiritual judgment on them for their rejection of me. And the way that that judgment is going to be signified is by wiping the dust off of your feet. In the same way that when we're baptized, we are doing something that signifies the truth that we've been buried and raised together with Christ, when these disciples were wiping the dust off of their feet, they were doing something to signify that a judgment had been taking place, had taken place on this village. They were basically saying, these people who think that they're Jews, who think that they belong to God, do not. He was saying, you're not Jews, you're actually Gentiles. Paul would later say the same thing. In Philippians 2, and even in Romans 9, when he says, Not all who are descended of Israel are actually Israel. And it's here when we understand what wiping the dust off the feet really means that it's actually a judgment that we understand the real reason why Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs of two it was because he gave the disciples authority to render a judgment. And whenever someone renders a judgment, there must be a witness. In Deuteronomy, God requires that at least two witnesses be present in order to present evidence in the case of capital punishment. In Mark 6, we see the transition from capital punishment being applied to a national people to spiritual judgment being rendered on a spiritual people. We've been talking about Matthew 18 a lot, a lot about church discipline. And we see the same principles being applied. Jesus says, if you see a brother who's not acting like a brother, go to him one-on-one. If he doesn't repent, you need to get someone else so that there will be a witness in your testimony against them. And you go to them in a pair of two or three. There has to be a witness if you're going to render a judgment. And then finally, if the brother still doesn't repent, the church renders a judgment. And there are many witnesses in this rendering of a judgment. And Jesus says that that is where the authority to render judgment lies where two or three are gathered together in my name there I am with them authoritatively brothers and sisters we are not lone ranger christians we do not roam the world independently with the authority that Jesus has given us even with good intentions and the authority that Jesus has given you as an individual is not the same thing that is not the same kind of authority that Jesus has given us as a church Ultimately, what we are doing when we preach the gospel is a very serious matter. Those who receive our message receive it unto everlasting life. And those who reject our message reject it unto everlasting condemnation. This is no lighthearted matter. And it's certainly not a matter left best up to the judgment of one person, even one really wise person or one really holy person. In today's verses, we see the tiniest seed of the Great Commission and therefore of the mission of the church. But in the time that we live in now, this authority that he gives to these pairs of two of disciples no longer belongs to these pairs of twos of disciples. It belongs to the church where two or three people are gathered together in the name of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's why church membership and church discipline are so important. To fail to exercise this authority that Jesus has given us is to be derelict in our duties. We have failed to use the authority that Christ has called us to use. When we receive someone into membership in the life of this church, we are rendering spiritual judgment. And when we discipline someone in the life of this church, we are rendering spiritual judgment. So the wrong way to read these two-by-two two commands Is to see in it nothing more than just wisdom for the mission. The right way to see it is to see it as an exercising of divinely ordained authority that requires the witness of another person. And then to know that this authority has now been given to the church. The third incorrect way to read today's text is to see it as Jesus sending out a group of highly trained, perfectly proficient disciples. The exact opposite is true. Jesus is sending out a ragtag team that is being held together by duct tape. One commentator has said this. The disciples up to this point have impeded Jesus' mission. They've become exasperated with him. They've been sarcastic with him, and they've even opposed him. Not too long ago, these disciples were sitting in a boat with Jesus, looking at each other, going, who is this guy? And now Jesus is sending them out with the fullness of his authority? It doesn't make much sense. The disciples are what we would call today thick-headed. They just can't seem to get it. And brothers and sisters, that is fantastic news for you and me. Because we are thick-headed. In one way or another, we all really tend to whiff it in our walk with Christ. And there's a lesson to be learned here. Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. If we ever waited for the perfectly trained pastor, or the perfectly trained missionary, or the perfectly trained evangelist, we would never have a pastor, or a missionary, or an evangelist. If we waited until people, people were perfectly trained before we gave them a job, no work would ever get done. I ask people to pray here publicly on Sunday mornings. And most of the time, I'm assuming that they're not going to do a great job. And I think that that's okay. Because I think that they're going to get better. I don't wait for them to be perfectly proficient public speakers before I allow them an opportunity to edify their body. This body. In the kingdom of God, and especially in the post-Genesis 3 world, there has to be room for on-the-job training. Now, on the one hand, I don't want to say that we can give people very serious tasks that they are in no way prepared to handle. But we should be willing to let people fumble the ball sometimes. Even if we're not willing, they will fumble the ball, so we might as well prepare for it. Even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the disciples still fumble the ball. Peter is sitting with some Gentiles, but then when some of the circumcision party comes around, he stops eating with them, and he goes back and he starts sitting with the Jews. This is after he's seen the resurrected Jesus Christ in the flesh. He can't get it right. And so Paul confronts him to his face. And in the life of this church, we should learn to be okay with mistakes. And we should be willing to confront one another in love. We should be okay if one of our elders misspeaks. He's human. We should be okay if maybe your pastor makes the wrong leadership decision. Guess what? He already has. And he will again in the future. Or we should be okay when someone who's in charge of the children's ministry doesn't get the schedule done on time or doesn't fill out the roster correctly, or if they don't show up when they're supposed to show up. It's not ideal, and please, trust me, if you're in the part of the children's ministry, let me make this an application of my sermon, show up on time. But it's okay for people to make mistakes. We can't wait for perfectly trained people to carry out the mission of this church. I would rather have 20 devout members of this church striving towards perfection, but occasionally occasionally missing the mark than five trained, perfectly polished and proficient professionals doing all the ministry in the life of the church, leaving nothing for us. Robbing the members of this church of the joy of the ministry that God has given to them, not just paid pastors. How is anyone ever supposed to grow that way? How is anyone ever supposed to learn that way? How is anyone ever supposed to learn from their mistakes if we never give them an opportunity to make them in the first place? Parents, I thought about making this a big, long chunk of application for you as well, but I'm not going to do that. You can just kind of take everything I just said and think about it and how it applies to the life of you and your children. Are you expecting your children to be perfect? Are you expecting your children to have everything nailed down at the age of seven? Are you giving them room to make mistakes? something to consider. In summary, every worker that Jesus sends out, every single worker that Jesus sends out is an imperfect worker. And the success of the the mission does not depend on the perfection or the merit of the worker, but on the authority of the one who sends that worker. And that is good news for us. The fourth wrong way to read today's text is to understand that the disciples' work is primarily about what they do rather than what they say. In the opening verses, we read that Jesus gave the disciples authority over unclean spirits. Mark doesn't record for us much about what the disciples were supposed to do. He only really gives us a list of what they were supposed to take and not take on their journey. But we see in verse 12 that the main thing that the disciples are supposed to do once their masters, well, excuse me, that the main thing that the disciples do once their master lets them off their leash is they preach the gospel. Look at verse 12. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now the same account in the Gospel of Luke reads So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing everyone. You know, it's a popular notion that Jesus always meets people's physical needs before He meets their spiritual needs. Perhaps you've heard that. It is a lie. It's not true. It cannot be found anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture does Christ ever set the ministry of Word in opposition to the ministry of deed. But there is certainly a priority, and the priority is on the ministry of the Word. Jesus says that the reason why he came was to preach. The very first thing that he does after John is put in prison is he starts preaching the same thing that John was preaching. Repent. Believe the kingdom of God is at hand. As we've read the book of Mark together, we've seen that everywhere Jesus goes, his preoccupation is not with healing people, but with preaching the gospel. Healing and casting out demons is thrust upon him, and he often does it, and he does it with delight. But that's not the main reason why he came. And then, ironically, what we see is that more often than not, the signs and wonders that we think are necessary to empower the preaching of Jesus, oftentimes hinder the preaching of Jesus just as much as they empower His preaching. People get caught up in the flare. Give me a healing. Give me a miracle. People like that. They don't like repent and believe. Mark 1.38, Jesus says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach the gospel there, for that is why I came. Mark 3 when Jesus calls the twelve to Himself, he sa- Mark says this about that calling. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach. As you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that the preaching of the Gospel is the primary focus of Peter, and of Paul, and of James, and of Stephen, and of all the rest. Jesus is not merely sending His disciples out to have a ministry of presence, a ministry of good deeds. And maybe if I do enough good deeds, people's hearts, their dead hearts, will be favorably inclined to hear the Gospel. Just the opposite. Remember, sometimes healing hindered the Gospel just as much as it reinforced it. We've seen so far that some people look at Jesus' mighty deeds, healing of the leper, casting out demons, and they go, this is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. Praise Jesus. But sometimes people look at the exact same set of miracles and say, this man is from Satan, and his power comes from Satan too. That's what the Pharisees said in chapter 3, verse 22. So the wrong way to read today's text <coughs> is to think that Jesus sent out his disciples to be a traveling roadshow of miracles, healings, and exorcisms. Rather, we should see that Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel and to demonstrate the power of the gospel with signs and wonders as well. The same account in Luke 9, two reads this. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, before moving on, I want to take a brief aside and talk about healing. Is the same healing power that Jesus gave to these disciples alive and active and present today? Should anybody who goes out on mission for Jesus have this same healing power? Well, such a question can quickly divide a group of Christians. It can divide a denomination And I'm not really interested in starting a war about spiritual gifts this morning. See me afterwards and we'll argue in my office. I simply want to point out that the gift given to these early missionaries in their missionary endeavors, they seem to sort of slowly fade as you see the New Testament being written. In the book of James, even, one of the last books of the New Testament to be written, We don't see the Apostle calling for those with spiritual gifts of healing to heal those who are sick in the life of the church. And we certainly don't see James speaking as if every Christian has a gift to heal themselves or one another. Rather, in chapter 5, verse 14, we read this. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the lord well it assumes that it seems as if James assumes that in the regular life of church there's going to be sickness and the normal way to go about seeking healing for these normal things of sickness is through the very ordinary means of prayer it's as if the gift of healing has been taken from individuals and it's been given to the church Something to consider, perhaps. The next incorrect way to read this week's text is to see it as a prescriptive pattern for missions, not merely descriptive. Here's what I mean by that. It's to see it as Jesus' commands for us today rather than a description of what Jesus commanded at one point in time. Now, we've already touched on this a little bit. But we should touch on it a little bit more. You see, your Bible is full of things that people did because God commanded them to do it. And if we want to be good Christians, we have to know how to read our Bibles. And one of the questions that we often find ourselves asking as we read our Bibles is, is this thing that Jesus commanded this person still commanded for me today? Well, we wear clothes of mixed fabric. We, we don't think that that command is binding on us today. We eat shellfish, We don't obey the command that God gave the Israelites to slaughter the Amalekites. Why not? Well, I think it's because of biblical theology. Biblical theology. Biblical theology will help us make sense of what commands are for us today to still be obeyed and those which are not. But you may be thinking, well, Pastor Sean, I don't know what biblical theology is. First of all, don't call me Pastor Sean. Just call me Sean. Second of all, Here's what biblical theology is. It's learning how to read your Bible as a story. A story that begins with Genesis and ends in the book of Revelation. That begins before the foundations of the world when God elects and predestines and adopts His children. To the time when Christ sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to ransom those. To the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives now. As you are part of the story, to the end of the story in the new heavens and the new earth, when God will wipe away all sin, do away with all sin, and wipe away every tear from our eyes. This is how we read our Bibles as a story. And we should know that at certain points in the story, God works different ways. Now, God never changes, but the way that He operates does change. We've already seen that to some extent, have we not? Jesus tells the disciples, don't take this with you, do take that. And then a little bit later in the story, he says, do take this, and then take a whole bunch more. In the Old Testament, God commanded the slaughter of a lamb for the atonement of sins once a year. Well, today, God does not command that of us. Well, it's not because he's changed. It's just because we live in a different time where the perfect spotless lamb has already been slaughtered on our behalf. So, There are some commands in the Bible that we can now read and see as merely descriptive. There are things that God commanded his people to do at a particular point in history for a particular reason, but that he no longer commands us to do today. He describes them in his word. He doesn't prescribe them. Now, this is where we have to give some guardrails, like people who don't know how to bowl when they set those things up in the gutters. Bumpers, there it is. Because it would be all too easy for us as Christians to read our Bibles and say, well, that's descriptive. That's, that's not prescriptive. That doesn't apply to me today. So, I want to give you three things that can help you kind of put up guardrails as you read God's Word and try to determine what is and what is not descriptive and prescriptive. First of all, you should know that in the story of your Bible although it's not perfectly clean, it can be set up in two divisions, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And you should know that much of what God commanded His people in the Old Covenant is no longer commanded in the New Covenant because Christ has fulfilled that. And so if you see a command explicitly given in the New Testament that is different than the command given in the Old Testament, obey the command of the New Testament. You see that already, we saw that that same kind of thing already with the Mark and Luke Christ gave one command initially but later in the story he gave another command. And then after Luke there was another mission that the disciples were sent out on. The great commission, Matthew 28. And so we don't follow Mark chapter 6, we don't follow Luke chapter 22, we follow Matthew 28. That is not to say that God contradicts himself. It's just to say that according to his wise, according to his wisdom, he commands us to do some things some ways at certain times and not the same way at other times. Number two, we should always let that which is clear help us make sense of that which is less clear. Is this how missionaries should carry out missions today? Well, the text doesn't say this is binding on us forever, but other texts are very clear. And so we should let those texts interpret how we interpret this text. And then the third thing Is this, we should remember that even if the exact expression of God's will, I'm gonna read this, even if the exact expression of God's will as described in certain parts of the story isn't commanded for us today, the same underlying principles often are. Even if the exact expression of God's will as described in certain parts of the story isn't commanded for us today, the same underlying principles often are. So, God no longer commands us to slaughter a spotless lamb to atone for our sins. That doesn't mean that the principle that our sins need to be atoned for by the spotless lamb is not true. It is true. The same principle is still alive and active. Our sins need to be atoned for. They need to be washed away with, with something purer than our sins. But thank God that has been fulfilled. Much of what you see is commanded in the Old Testament is no longer binding on us today as commands. But that doesn't mean that the underlying principle behind that command is not binding on us. Going back to the principle of wearing clothes with mixed fabrics. <clears throat> the whole reason why God commanded the Israelites not to wear clothes with mixed fabrics wasn't because he was against moisture-working clothes. It was because he wanted to teach them a lesson about purity. Purity. He wanted every part of their life to be teaching them something, and he said, hey, you're a clean people surrounded by an unclean people. I don't want you guys to mix it up, and I'm going to tell you that any way that I can, including in your clothes. Well, even now that we have the joy of wearing polyester and cotton together, that doesn't mean that the principle that we should not be mixing with the polluted world is still not just as true today as it was during the time of the New Testament. And this could be a whole other sermon, so I digress. Friends, these verses are not a blueprint or a pattern for the Great Commission. They are merely descriptive of a mission that Jesus gave His disciples at a certain point in time. But He later gave them a different mission. But the same principle of needing to carry out the gospel and to do so in dependence and trust in the Savior and under the power of His authority is still alive and active for the Great Commission today. Finally, and perhaps the worst way to read this text is to read it as being about something other than Jesus Christ. It's to read it as being just about missions rather than about Christ himself. You see, Jesus is not sending out his disciples in their own power. He's sending them out under his authority. He's not sending the disciples out to proclaim their own name He's sending them out to proclaim His name. He's not just sending them out with some amorphous mission. He's sending them out with a mission designed by Him, about Him, to which all the glory will be given to Him. This text is about mission, but this mission is fundamentally about Jesus. And those who reject this message... And those who are not captured by this mission are rejecting Jesus. I think the thing that Mark wants us to grasp as we read this portion of the gospel is not the finer details of the mission plan, but rather that the mission is ramping up. And as the mission ramps up, we need to fully trust in the authority of Jesus Christ as he sends us to go. In verse 6, it says that Jesus was going from village to village, teaching the kingdom of God and calling men to repentance. But Jesus can only do so much. He is fully God, but he's also fully man. He's not nightcrawler. He can't be in this place and then that. So as the mission ramps up, as Jesus continues to call men everywhere to repent of their sins, he needs help. And so he sends out his little image bearers. He sends out his little representatives people who represent His image and His authority to the world in a way that He can't just because He can't be everywhere at once. You remember in the garden, God created us in His image and likeness. And then after the fall, that image and likeness was shattered by sin. Here in this first mission, we're beginning to get the glimpses of Jesus Christ restoring His image in people, and then sending out that restored and renewed image to the world. It's as if Jesus Christ is simulcasting His gospel to all of these villages through His disciples. And the same is true of the mission today. Jesus Christ is in heaven, and you are here on earth. And Jesus has given us the incredible gift of participating with Him in this mission. And so He sends us out to proclaim the glory of His name. The reason why you're a Christian today is because another image-bearer of Christ preached the gospel to you. And the reason why they were a Christian is because an image-bearer of Christ preached the gospel to them. And so on and so on. (coughs) In an unbroken chain 2,000 years old, no pyramid scheme can keep up with the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And his mission is to make himself known. His mission isn't just to carry out the mission. His mission isn't more baptisms that we're going to count and then report to some body that we think has authority over us. His mission is not to build a bigger church. His mission is not to have more money. His mission is the spread of the fame of his name. Now whether we do that with a little bit of money, like we currently are, or do it with a lot of money, whether we heal people along the way or invite them to be prayed for by elders, whether we take a walking stick with us as we go or an iPhone, the principle of the mission is still the same in the Great Commission. It's to depend fully on Jesus Christ with all of our hearts as we walk in the power of the Spirit for the purpose of making Jesus known to the world lost in sin. And we do this by calling men everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sins, and if you're walking in them and you have not trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you to turn from them even now and return to God's kingdom. Let Him restore your image. If you think that there's time, I promise you that there's not. As a church, I want us to be what, I want this to be the business that we are about. Yes, we can do other good things. We can feed the homeless. Hopefully, we have healings. Maybe the Lord does a miracle in the life of the church. He already has, even if it hasn't been as spectacular as some of us might expect. But those aren't the things that we're chasing. Those things can even distract from the main thing that we're chasing, which is that the glory of Jesus Christ be proclaimed in the life of this church. And I'm already beginning to see it take effect. I look around the room and I see people's lives who have been transformed by the gospel. And I know that it's because we're focusing on the gospel. We're focusing on Christ. Not anything else that might confuse or get in the way. So my prayer is that as we go out and spend the rest of our week in the world, we would do so with an eye towards the gospel, with hearts heavy for the kingdom of God, with lips ready to speak and communicate truth to a lost world. May the Lord bless us if we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for including us in your mission. And we ask that you would empower us as we go. We thank you for blessing us through Grant's benediction at the end of every service every week, reminding us of the truth that we need as we prepare to go back out and fight in the war that exists outside the walls of this church. We pray that you would help us to love one another and to serve one another and to treat each other well like weary, wounded soldiers on the battlefield. Teach us our mission, and give us the ability to carry it out. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me.